You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I was in Orlando a couple months ago and gave a presentation to a group of young transportation planners. And I had a couple of people come up to me afterwards and said, you need to talk to Kittleson and Associates. You need to chat with someone there. I got a hold of them and wound up talking to a guy named Connor Semler. And I hope, Connor, I got your name right. Semler, right? Yep. We're on the same page. Okay, good. Connor's an associate planner at Kittleson and Associates. He was involved in the development of both the NACTO Urban Bikeway Design Guide and the FHWA Separated Bike Lane Planning and Design Guide. He's also been part of putting together this decision-making framework that changes the way engineers, planners, and other transportation professionals approach street design. I was told I needed to talk to you. I was told this stuff was really innovative and a different way to look at it. And boy, when I dug into it, that was certainly my impression. So I'm excited to chat with you. Connor, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tell me just a little bit at the top about you and Kittleson and Associates. <clears throat> You're out of Boston. I, I know you guys work in other places. Yep. What do, what do you guys do? Yeah. So Kittleson is a transportation-focused engineering and planning firm. We're not a large company, but for a company that focuses ex- exclusively on transportation, I think that we are on the larger side. And so our work is interested in how we plan and design and operate streets. My background is in urban planning, and I've worked with Kittleson for my whole career from Portland, Oregon to Baltimore to Boston by way of even Australia. Sure. And uh, yeah, so I moved to Boston about 10 years ago, and I actually helped open the Kittleson office here in Boston. Okay. Fantastic. In Baltimore too, huh? Yes, Baltimore too. One of the cities that has a soft spot in my heart. It's such a we, great place, right? It's such a great place. We only lasted two years though. Okay. <laughs> my wife then had been sacrificing her career a bit to follow, to go sure, with sure. me from, from grad school to Portland, to Australia, to Baltimore. And she got a great job opportunity here in Boston. And so we moved up here oh, and um, started focusing on trying to build something here. I want to ask you a little bit to talk about the problem we're trying to solve, right? I tweeted something out the other day that came to my mind because there's this dichotomy in the engineering profession that that I see. And here was my thought. I said, there's a reason why, you know, traffic engineers are the reason we have 40,000 deaths a year and not half a million deaths a year on our roadways. And, and my point was like, traffic engineers have done something heroic to save lives. But transportation engineers are also part of the reason we have 40,000 deaths a year and not zero. There's something missing in that rubric and that framework of the standard traffic engineer. Can you talk a little bit about the problem that we're trying to solve as transportation professionals and maybe a little bit of why that is so elusive to us, particularly in this last I don't want to minimize that, like say, oh, it's the it's the last little bit because it's mm-hmm. tens of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. But why is this in this march of progress? I think that the engineering profession can rightly claim credit for. Why have we stalled out for such a long period of time and been unable to really make much progress? Yeah, I think you and your listeners know well that we, as an industry, put the highest priority and amount of attention and analysis behind understanding 
the minute details of how traffic will operate. And we do that especially laser focused at the intersection level. And we, you know, we've developed very detailed and complex equations to understand if you have this number of vehicles going straight and this number turning and this number coming from this direction, exactly how long the average person will wait during the peak 15 minutes of the day, right? It's it's a lot, a lot, a lot of qualifiers to get to a very specific data point, which engineers love. Engineers and, love to... And you even said person, but you actually mean driver, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes. That's right. The average driver. We don't. Right. We sometimes ask how what the average person will wait, but we always ask how long the average driver will the wait. The average driver will wait, right. That's right. Yep. Thank you. Um, <laughs> engineers are wired to do a couple things. One is to you know crunch numbers and analyze data. And they're very comfortable in the world of intersection operations analysis because it's all the things they love. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they're wired to do is to not let things fail. And as a, as an industry, we've defined failure as you know greater than 80 seconds of delay for the average driver in the peak 15 minutes of the 30th highest hour of the year, right? Say that again, because I, I want people to hear that because you you didn't just say that flippantly. You actually said that as a standard because it it is a standard, right? Yeah. Failure to an engineer, to a traffic engineer, is that when the average driver has to wait longer than 80 seconds during the peak 15 minutes of the 30th most busy hour of the year at a given intersection. Amen. I'm saying a silent. <laughs> <laughs> This is failure. They're, they're programmed yes. to stop to avoid failure because failure in most engineering professions is disaster. A bridge right. collapses, a building falls down. Uh, um, the space shuttle know, blows so, up. Yeah. Space shuttle blows up. Things don't work. People die. Right. Failure in traffic, as I know you talk about a lot, failure in traffic mm-hmm. is just a little bit longer of delay. And so mm-hmm. that's the first problem that we're trying to unravel. The first, the first layer that we're trying to unravel. When we're talking about our trade-offs on our streets, we need to get away from words like this works or this won't work, or this is this is failure, this is unacceptable. We should talk about what the trade-offs are. If we make this proposed street change, we can expect to have longer delay during rush hours for people driving in exchange for better impacts to the public health, better impacts to local economy, improved safety, all the other things that transportation decisions affect in a very direct way that aren't as measurable through an equation that studies the you know the, the minute details of the peak hour. There is, and I've struggled with this. I've struggled, you know, when working as an engineer, when working as a planner, I struggled to put my finger on why we measured success so kind of one-dimensionally, right? Like, like here is the way we measure success. And, and I came to this conclusion that if we were going to do this project of you know, constructing a transportation system around the automobile in a sense from scratch at the end of World War II, we had to have these defining metrics that we would work towards. I'm not trying to let engineers off the hook, but I am trying to understand the mentality of why, because for you and me, we can step back and see that, you know, the single-minded focus really has a lot of other impacts. What is it about the engineering mindset or the the transportation planning mindset that allows us to fixate on these kind of very narrow set of metrics? I've heard it explained that in the early days of development of the Ashto guides, there was an agenda being advanced to refocus our decision-making around traffic performance, driver driver experience. And that is most evident in the attribution of 
report card style letter grades right. for different le- different amounts of delay. You know, there's a statement in the Ashto guide that says these grades are not meant to imply any kind of value. They're just a score. But obviously everyone knows an A versus an F. We chose the exact same. <laughs> right. Right. It's not that we named them orange and banana and exactly, you exactly. Know, watermelon. We we said A, B, C, D, and F. Yeah. So I certainly wasn't around when that was happening. And I don't have my own firsthand research to tell me whether or not that's true. But I, I know that it's I know that it's true that there is bias embedded into the Ashto guide. And that bias has carried through for generations. So to the point where engineers who are being trained in the 80s and 90s and 2000s aren't even thinking about it because it's just this is how we do our analysis. Engineering is a is a mathematical process. There shouldn't be bias or value in it. And I think engineers don't often stop to ask the question, what are the underlying assumptions and, and core values that inform these equations or inform these assessments? Because it's not something that they're other engineering professions are wired to do. I want to make an observation. I'd like you to react to it because you you prompted something in my mind right there. I've told this story before about the transportation engineer that I worked with who, when it probably was the third or fourth, and I'm just going to say old lady who got hit trying to do a left across traffic, which is, you know, I, I don't say that to disparage elderly woman, but that's what it was. We had a, a series of elderly women driving who ended up trying to take a left across traffic, which is very dangerous at high speeds and were sideswiped and killed. When the fourth one happened, I just watched him go to a back room and break down, like start crying. I've tried to express that these are not people who are without compassion, without human, you know, we're very comfortable with numbers and spreadsheets and, and you know, exact calculations, but these are not people without souls. How do you listen to engineers talk about safety and talk about the things that they're doing. How how does their belief system, in a sense, where they say, you know, safety is our number one priority, Mm -hmm. what do they actually mean when they say that? Yeah, I think that's another great point. The majority of people in this country, their number one mode of travel is by car, right? right? Outside of cities, most people get most places by driving. And that that isn't just for the public, it's also for the engineering professionals. Sure. I do believe, and I've had lots of conversations with colleagues around, uh, it reveals the passion behind the work that they do. A lot of people that I work with are doing transportation because they believe it's important and they care about the outcomes. And when state DOTs say safety is our number one priority, they they mean it in the way that they understand it. And that is, I think, the term people use is a windshield of perspective. They see the world through the windshield of their car, and that's that's how they're accustomed to interpreting life. And so, therefore, when they're thinking about safety, they're thinking about the people who have to make a challenging left turn across high-speed traffic, right? Right. right. That's the scary thing to them. Mm-hmm. They're not riding a bike on a 40-mile-per-hour street, ever. Mm-hmm. They can't feel that in their bones, where they can feel – they can feel what it's like to sit at traffic for a long long delay, you know, multiple signals trying to get through a single intersection. They can feel that. And that I think comes out in the work that that we we as professionals do. I always felt that the engineers around me believed level of service A was safer than like level of service F. When the reality is it's like nobody dies at level of service yeah, F. Yeah. Right? I hear that less now. I I don't think people are it's saying true. that now. I think I think that we've come to understand that speed is a real, real problem. And you know, COVID was a perfect case study of what happens if we take a lot of capacity, take a lot of demand out of the system, we start to see opportunities for more speeding. And we saw even with less people driving, traffic crashes and fatalities increasing. 
Right, right. Okay, so you gave us a metric of designing for delay at peak time. The outcome of that metric is that we tend to, as a conservative design, and I'm I'm using air quotes there for the people that are are, are listening and not watching, a conservative design for an engineer is one that provides excess capacity so that we don't have those delays at peak times. What's the impact of having excess capacity? Because as an engineer, the the impact is, well, you know, in the peak times, people aren't delayed. And then the non-peak times, people aren't delayed. So all is good being, you know, conservative about our design. What's the downside of of that mindset? So I think the first thing that I would go to, and people are talking about this, is this concept of induced demand. When you build excess capacity, you create more opportunities for people to develop and and sprawl our our metropolitan areas larger and then eventually your traffic is going to fill that unused capacity. But what people don't talk about as much and what our research is trying to highlight is there's specific negative externalities to building unused capacity. So as I just alluded to the example during the COVID pandemic, when you when you're built to capacity during the peak hour during off peak times, there's more space on the road and drivers will go faster. And faster driving leads directly to more frequent and more severe crashes. And so we know that by building extra capacity, we will increase the likelihood that there will be severe or fatal crashes. Extra capacity, which is manifest through wider streets, more turning lanes, more signal phasing, also necessarily creates more delay for everyone using an intersection, and especially for people walking and biking. It takes longer for a pedestrian to walk across a wider street, which means that the traffic signal needs more time to allow for the pedestrian to cross the wider street, which now means that you're taking away time from other drivers, which the intersection analysis will tell you, oh, we need to increase the cycle length. So we end up building longer and longer traffic signal cycles, which has a negative impact on everyone. And finally, these wider streets also make it less possible to create conditions where people would ever feel comfortable walking or biking, further encouraging more people to drive. To me, these are three brilliant insights, and I, I want to break them down a little bit. When we build peak capacity, we have, you know, during that peak moment, we can handle more traffic. But when that traffic is not there, this wide open space becomes really hostile to people in cars, out of cars. Am I grasping that correctly? Yes, that's exactly right. Is it just that there's way more space now to, in a sense, You've engineered for high speeds, so people go high speeds. I mean, what's the what's the connection here? There's a relationship between sort of the width of the field of vision per driver and how fast they feel comfortable going. So if you can just put yourself in the situation of you're on a suburban arterial, say there's four or six lanes, and you're driving during a relatively congested time during peak hour, there's sort of cars all over the place. There's traffic lights up ahead that you can see where there's queues. And so you're not going to put your pedal to the metal to get to the back of a queue, you'll see you know it's coming and sort of go along with the flow of traffic. Now at 2 p.m. or 11 p.m., imagine yourself on that same street and there's very few cars around and you've got a a series of sequential green lights ahead of you. A certain kind of driver will take advantage and really just accelerate through that moment to to proceed through that space as quickly as possible to, to get where they're trying to go. I've always felt that engineers need to spend time in the things that they're designing after like 10 p.m. Yeah. Because it it really does jump out at you 
And they'll say, you know, well, there's there's very few cars there. Why would we design for that? <laughs> um, but if you look at like when all the fatalities occur and when, I mean, not every single one, but when the majority of traumatic fatal crashes occur, it's it's not during peak time, right? That's right. And that's because of the relationship between speed and severity. Right. Faster moving traffic results in more severity. Let me dig into the second point you made, which I think it's such a counterintuitive one for engineers, but maybe sometimes for the public. And that is by having excess capacity, you actually have reduced or increased travel time. You actually don't get to where you're going faster. Mm -hmm. I've struggled myself to explain this because people are like, well, if you build a bigger road, people can get there faster. And I'm like, yes, during like half an hour during the day, you will have a higher volume of cars, but the rest of the day, you're actually going to not move as much traffic. Can you like dig into that just a little bit more? I, I feel like it is one of those things that is counterintuitive, but so powerful once you grasp. Yeah. The way I've come to understand it is by thinking about, so back when I was doing a lot of traffic analysis in the early days of my career, there are two measures that engineers go to, and this is going to get a little bit technical. Go for it. The first is volume to capacity ratio. Mm-hmm. And that is you know, a, a ratio from zero to one of how much the volume on a street or at an intersection uses up the available capacity at an intersection. The closer you get to one, the more your street is considered to be congested and the closer you are to being at capacity. Right. That measure is influenced by a lot of factors inc- related to your traffic signal operation. But one of those factors is what's known as lost time. And that is the time in between signal phases when the, when the signal is all red. So, you know, you've got green light, yellow light, red light, three or four seconds, side street green light. Yeah. The shorter your cycle is, so a 60 second cycle is going to have that lost time occur more frequently during an hour, which is how we measure capacity over the course of an hour. So you've got a larger number of seconds during your hour that are lost time that can't provide capacity to any vehicle. If you start to lengthen your cycles, say you go to two minutes, now you've reduced your lost time by half. So you've there's more seconds in your hour that are available to allowing cars to drive through your intersection. Because there's less time where all is red. There's less time sure there's where there's no all side swipes red. and people running red lights and that kind of stuff. Right. Yep. So from a purely mathematical perspective, if you increase your cycle length, you get more capacity. And so with the same amount of same volume in your volume to capacity ratio, you can look like you're performing better. You can reduce your volume to capacity ratio in a mathematical world. And then that looks good on a report when you go into traffic council and say, look, my proposed uh, subdivision isn't going to impact your streets that badly. The second measure, which we talk about a lot as well, is delay. And delay is very complicated to measure. I, I don't have, even in my head, I can't tell you everything that goes into it. But the average delay per user always goes up when you increase your cycle length. And it's especially felt by pedestrians and especially especially felt by pedestrians when you have an actuated signal, when the pedestrian has to push a button to get permission to cross the street. This is something that we hardly ever measure and even less report in any kind of official traffic report, the average delay for someone walking across the street. But if you have a two minute cycle and you arrive to push the button two seconds after your opportunity was, you're waiting a full two minutes before you even get a chance to cross the street. That detail is felt really you know, acutely by someone walking on the street and is just sort of a flushed away in the analysis of the way we, we analyze intersections. Yeah. I mean, you're in Boston, I'm in Minnesota. 
there are many times where it's 20 below zero, where you stand at the yeah. intersection and, you know, wait two minutes to have the opportunity to cross. What you said about the ratios was brilliant. I feel like there is a, there's a window where that works, where you can optimize it. Again, to go to the engineer mindset, I live in a small town, 14,000 people, right? We have a three-hour evening commute and a three-hour morning commute where the lights are timed in that way. Our actual peak time is about 15 minutes. And so all through that window, Mm -hmm. everybody sits on the side streets while there's no traffic going anywhere and essentially waits for this longer signal that is done to you know have that correct ratio sits there and waits and you get from an experience level except that 15 minutes you get much much longer travel times in the same roadway just so we can have that peak capacity issue dealt with i'm speaking of a common occurrence right that's something yeah. you've seen yes absolutely mm-hmm. there's a value made a value choice made by the signal designer the intersection designer as to which intersection which um, approach to the intersection should wait for which approach and you know primarily we're thinking about moving the the larger street through because that has a higher volume of traffic and therefore serving more drivers if you can make that signal be one minute long or two minutes long, that's going to have a significant impact on those people on the side streets Absolutely. without a major difference in delay. Let's talk about the never, third. Never delay, sorry. The <laughs> third. Th- no, no. I let's talk about the third thing you brought up, which is is just kind of like the safety then of being yeah. in that space. And I think it's pretty obvious to people that you know if you're crossing on foot a wider space, you are in a sense naked and exposed to traffic for longer, and and that's pretty obvious. But it seems to me that. When you have these excessive delays, especially when the other side, you know, you don't have the obvious volume of traffic that would otherwise be holding you up, humans just do dumb things, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Hans Monderman, who was like the shared space guy out of the, the Netherlands, had this statement, when you treat people like idiots, they act like idiots. Mm-hmm. And I feel there's something to be said about uh, intersection design designed for peak is that in the shoulder of the peak time, and then in throughout most of that that off-peak gap, you are actually treating people like idiots, and they tend to then respond by kind of acting like idiots. They they tend to do dumb, reckless things. Is that again? Am, am I? Are we yeah. tracking? I, I feel like that's what you were. That's your third point <clears throat> that you were making was along those yeah, lines. Yeah. I can't claim to perfectly understand the psychology behind why people do what they do, but it's certain I've certainly observed it and we can see it in the data that yeah. these, these times when there, when there is less traffic on the streets, when there's less things in the way, people will, will drive more recklessly, will drive faster. What I think we don't address head on enough is how much emotion is, how much driver's emotions affects their behavior and how, far engineers go to accommodate that yeah. and to your point from earlier we we as a profession are doing that out of good intentions we understand there are certain things that there are certain rules that drivers won't adhere to in fact a lot of the guidance in the mutcd is based on what we believe drivers will tolerate and what they won't and then we just we come up with guidelines that correspond to that you know a quick little tangent we have policies on where you can put a mid-block crosswalk or where, you know, crosswalk guidance. And different size streets have different allowances for cross different types of crosswalks. 
purely because we know drivers won't adhere to the law. The law requires the driver to yield to pedestrian in any condition, but right. on a four lane street with 40 mile per hour traffic, we just know the drivers won't do it. So we don't bother putting it out there. Right. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of that built into the, our policies and guidance, which is often unstated. And so back to your earlier point, drivers will get really frustrated after a couple of intersections in a row of delay. And we know that will lead to bad behavior. And so that's one of the strong reasons we try to avoid, we as a profession try to avoid creating those conditions. It's so interesting. I'm going to say this in a, in a jerkier way. You, you said it in a very nice way. I'm going to say it in, in a more provocative way. There's a certain uh, strain of activism that I think wants to have a war on car drivers. And, you know, say drivers have this pathological mentality. Drivers feel like they own the road. Drivers are aggressive. And I get frustrated with that approach. But I also step back and recognize that we really have created a system designed to cater to the neurosis of drivers. At every design decision, we would say, what does a pathologic near, you know, driver do? And let's make sure we accommodate that. that. That's a fair insight, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it is never more clear than if you go to a community meeting about a proposed new bike lane project, yeah. inevitably, someone's going to come and say, bicyclists can have this bike lane once they start obeying the law. Right. And yeah. if you ever even <laughs> spend five minutes thinking critically about that comment, what they're talking about is presumably they see people biking, running through red lights. Mm -hmm. Drivers run through red lights on every cycle. I'm not just talking about in a driver's mind, there's a distinction between running a stale red light and running a, a, a like a late yellow. Right. Drivers are looking at their phones. Drivers aren't yielding pedestrians. Drivers aren't going the speed limit. I could go on for an hour. Listening no, to all I, the ways that drivers don't I've, follow the law. Yeah, I've made the it's, argument that, you know, traffic laws are unjust in and of themselves because any police officer that falls any car ever will find some law they've broken within, yeah. you know, a couple miles. Like everybody yeah, yeah. all the time is breaking traffic laws. What's important to acknowledge is that there's this distinction between the laws that I as a driver am allowed to break and the laws that you as a cyclist are choosing to break, right? right. You're seen as yes. it's, it's the... They're assigning, a, attributing this error to your personality because of this type of law breaking you're doing while committing all the offenses that I just mentioned. So I want to talk about the framework that you've been yeah. working on. I think the thing that is brilliant about it, or the thing that I find the most intriguing about it, is that, you know, where where at Strong Towns, we've kind of tried to nudge city council members and and local leaders to create systems that go around engineers you know, create a street design team, have engineers be part of it, but have other professionals who are leading it and have their priorities and values be part of it. You are actually creating a different framework for engineers to evaluate things. And, and I feel like it's one that is not inconsistent with the human values that engineers I know have. So can we talk a little bit about, I, I wrote down the safe systems approach, the idea that we accommodate all human mistakes and that we, mm -hmm. in a sense, lower the barrier of, um, well, how you keep impacts to human body at tolerable levels. And I, I wrote, reduce the margin of error. What are you trying to get at overall in like a, a, yeah. a safety framework with those two places as a, as a starting point? Mm -hmm. So the, the framework is meant to support cities and towns and states as they're thinking through changes to streets. Mm -hmm. And there's dozens and dozens of projects that could come right to mind that where you could find this useful. But what we're trying to do is 
start with the idea that safety is actually more important than these other goals. And we're not just the ones saying that. Every state DOT says safety is their number one priority. Federal Highway has the safe system approach that you just referred to. Which the, the engineering code of ethics says it, right? The engin- yes, right. Yeah. Safety is actually a higher priority. And every engineer will say it and then turn around and make decisions that place other things at a higher priority than safety. Yes. And so we want one of two things to happen. Either you make safety your top priority and make the choice to design your street that puts safety first, or admit that you're saying parking is more important than safety or traffic capacity is more important than safety. We don't think it's appropriate for cities and towns to any longer come out and say safety is our top priority out of the one side of their mouth and then make choices out of the other side of their mouth. And so the framework is designed to first ask the questions, what are you working with here? So are you reconstructing your street or are you just restriping it? What's your land use context? What's your traffic volume? What are the different contexts you're working within? And then our research produces what we're calling a minimum safe design. And that minimum is is maybe negotiable, but it's here is what would be a safe design for your street. Just like we have minimum lane widths for vehicles, we propose minimum dimensions for people walking, biking, transit, and driving for, for every for, context. From a safety standpoint. From a safety standpoint. Can, can I, just for clarification at this point, Absolutely. I often see posted speed limits of 45 miles an hour with a, a narrow green bike lane on the edge of it or a sidewalk right on the edge of the, the roadway. And I look at that and as a designer, I know that there's zero chance that that is safe in any way. There, there's no way that that is a safe environment. You're saying in an environment like that, if you say we're going to have 45 mile an hour travel speed, then you're saying there's a minimum bike lane width and bike lane separation and all that. Yes, for, yes okay. exactly. Yep, gotcha. That's exactly right. And we pulled all the research we could from the US and internationally to inform a series of lookup tables in the guide for different contexts. And so just the example you describe, if we're at 40, 45 miles per hour, we know that your bike lane has got to be physically separated with some separated. kind of durable, right. durable separation. Mm-hmm. And you need separation for your sidewalk with the, with a certain width. Can we say that again? It is so bizarre to me that honest, good, even bike advocates at times will say, well, I, I want the bike lane. And I'm like, what, what are we talking about? How do you drive 45 miles an hour, two feet, three feet away from a person on a bike? Like there is no way without physical separation to build that safely, right? That's, that's right. We have, as an industry, shied away from using, from the word safety. We, we want, again, engineers want rigor and data before they'll say what's safe and what's unsafe. We as an industry have applied this. We have been unwilling to say that 45 mile per hour next to a, a bike lane yeah. on a 45 mile per hour street is unsafe. But our research team, just we came to the conclusion that we understand how physics works. Right, <laughs> and, right. and we understand <laughs> that there's no chance anyone would ever experience a safe environment in that context. And so yes. what we're saying is at, at those speeds, we need to full separation. And here's all the resources that tell us this, including Federal Highway Administration, which has published guidance on this. Well, the the only way you would have a safety in that specific condition is that if you discouraged more bikers from biking. 
Right. Yeah, like, that's I mean, right. That's right. That, that's the way you improve safety is you actually discourage people from <laughs> utilizing people. it. So there's fewer instances for, yes. for conflict. And mm-hmm. the sad thing is I say that, but I say that knowing that that is actually a strategy engineers have mm-hmm. used. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to have facilities, you're saying at 20 mile an hour speeds, you're going to have a different type of facility for a bike then if traffic's traveling at 50 mile an hour speeds, then it's a different, and, and these are the minimum that we, this is the starting point for your, yeah, this is the starting point point for for safety. And then you can, you can make, you can go from there and make different choices that, but we want to start from here is what's needed to design, to have your street work for people walking, biking, driving. And if there's buses in transit, and then you can make choices from there. You had this slide and the slide said, like, is your corridor yeah. wide enough for yeah. this? Talk through what you're thinking of there, because you had one that said, it's not wide enough. No, it's not wide enough. What's the question you're asking there? And what does that get you to? Yeah. So we wanted to try walk a fine line between an, an idealistic and, and preferred outcome and pragmatism. We do know yep. that there are realities. Those of us who live in historic cities, you know that there's it's not realistic to widen the street in a lot of cases right? because of you know the expense or the political, it's never going to become possible to make a street wider in downtown Boston. Right. Um, or any city really. Right. So there could be conditions, say you've got a, you know, actually Baltimore could be a good example. You've got fast moving traffic in a pretty narrow cross section mm-hmm. and you actually don't have enough room to put in one lane of traffic in each direction and the necessary safe facilities for people walking and biking. So we don't want the guidebook to just have show up our hands and say, you're out of luck. So we, we then have a whole chapter in the guide that talks through strategies where you can get to a safe outcome for all users within that more, more constrained right away. And by making other compromises, for example, maybe the street could only be one way for traffic because you don't have enough room for two-way traffic and the safe facilities. Or how can we realistically reduce the speeds on this street, not just by changing the speed limit sign, of course, but by actually changing the design of the street so that people go slower where, okay, now a bike lane on the street is actually a safe design. There's a whole discussion on a whole series of options, depending on your context, to try and work through those really challenging and not uncommon situations. I feel like one of the most powerful parts of this is that you actually ask people to identify these conflicts let me walk through a standard design process because I feel like what happens in a transportation engineering framework is that we say, all right, what's the volume of traffic we're expected to handle and what's the speed? That gives us this geometry, this many lanes, this much space. And then what do we have left over that we can you know, allocate to bike lanes or sidewalks for people walking or whatever? And in a sense, there's like the table scraps left over for that. What I feel you are saying is... You're asking at this speed, what is safe? And if you're not providing that, then what? Then you actually have to say, well, you know, this is not safe and let's look at alternative ways we can make it safe or ultimately just acknowledge that this won't be safe. How would a design professional look at this or think through this? Yeah. Well, you said something really important that we want to make sure we're clear about. Okay, please. So what happens all the time is we've got a, a busy street. The cycling community comes forward and says, we need space for biking. This street is not safe. And so yeah. it's, a, it's a four lane street with on-street parking. And 
someone will do a back of the envelope calculation about the volume and say, you know, a road diet won't work. We don't have room for a separated bike lane. Without admitting it, the engineers are saying four lanes of traffic is a higher priority than safety. And so we're saying the minimum safe design for that street is actually one lane of traffic in each direction and separated bike lanes and separated wide sidewalks. Then once you start with that dimension, what can you do to, to improve traffic? That's a fine question. But you don't get to say, well, there's no room for bikes on this street. You have to say, we think that traffic is more important than safety for biking. That's something we're really trying to push in all of our framework method. Right. We've reached a decision here that accommodating this level of traffic at this speed with these kind of intersection peak designs is more important than you know safely accommodating bikes. I feel like two things. I feel like that is honest, A. Yeah. I also feel like it is difficult and no engineer is going to want to do that, right? <laughs> I don't know about no, but... A few engineers are going yeah. to want and, to do and, that. And you know, right? you could, I could imagine going to a community meeting and people in the room saying, yeah, we do agree with that. We should actually sure. we do think traffic is more important, but at least at least you're no longer saying the other thing, saying that safety is our top right. priority, but we can't fit safety. So that's when the second part of our research comes into play. And what we've tried to do is really articulate how street design decisions impact the wide swath of our society that we never talk about or never measure in these in these processes. Yeah. So we talk about impacts on equity and environment and economy and public health and safety and we pulled in a just enormous amount of research on these topics. So the framework allows you to test every possible street design change and, and report back what do we know are the likely outcomes for those factors that I just mentioned, economy, environment, et cetera. If you add a parking lane, what would the impacts be? If you remove a parking lane, what would the impacts be? If you add a bus lane, if you make your bike lane wider, if you make your travel lane narrower, there's Every one of those iterations has been researched in scattershot research all over all over sure. the country and the world. Mm-hmm. And we brought that all into one massive matrix that I think is, you know, for the real nerds, is an exciting <laughs> outcome of this research. Yeah, yeah. And it's incorporated into a, a spreadsheet tool that it will just spit out the answers for you. But also the, all of the documentation is listed in the guide to at least try to help communities and, and, and decision makers have a more well-rounded conversation around the impacts of these changes. Right, right. I do feel like part of what you're getting at is a conversation about design that, I hate to use the word empowers because I feel like it's way overused. In the design process today, there's a little bit of a black box that engineers come forward with. And that black box reflects a whole bunch of values that are not technical in nature. They don't involve any technical expertise. That they're values that elected officials, appointed committee members, members of the public, people living on a street would all generally have a say in. But they're they're wrapped into this black box of design. It feels like what you are attempting to do, or what you have done with this framework, is to surface those values and allow people to have a discussion on. Here's what we prioritize. Now go design it in with these reflecting these values. I mean, is that a fair? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I might steal the way you framed it because I really like the way you (laughs) talked about it. That's exactly what we're trying to do. And I didn't mention this earlier, and I should have that step one of the framework where we're gathering the context and the possibilities of your project. We're also asking the community, what do you want to have happen 
with your street, with your corridor, with your community. Yeah. And if those goals, as they often are, are tied to things like equity and environment, then here's a method to help you understand. Apologies. <laughs> oh, no, you're you're great. You've got some kids in the background. And uh, we were talking a little bit before we went on about age of kids, because I just dropped one of mine off at college. And I'm I'm a little jealous that you get another decade with yours. That's right. They, I do. They I, out. <laughs> I'm, I'm focusing on embracing that as, as we speak. Uh, yeah, that's um, good. Even if that means they're barging in on a Yeah, on it's, be- a it's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, anyway, so yeah, this research will help people compare those goals that they said in step one to the different options and then, you know, more directly quantify to the extent we can how each option performs against those goals. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like when I read cities comp plans and when I, you know, in the past have participated in planning processes and, and have gone through different community visioning approaches and what have you, I've never heard anyone say our priority is, the speed and volume of traffic. I mean, I literally have never heard that yet. That is the dominant design criteria that we see expressed throughout 90, 95, 98 plus percent of North America. I feel like you've come up with a powerful way to, in the design process, maybe tie in some of those, those values that get spoken, but then put on a shelf. How do you see engineers or how have you seen engineers react to this? How have, how has this process been? I know you've got some examples of how it's been utilized. How are people embracing this? Where, yeah. where have you seen friction on it? Well, what I've seen people really grasp onto and which we haven't talked about explicitly today is this concept that we introduced in the guide of what we're calling all day traffic operations. So yeah. Yeah. at the very outset, I was talking about the peak 15 minutes and how that ties our hands in decision-making. Right. And we're really trying to help analytically with with numbers and data and and crunching. How does the intersection or how does the street perform over the course of the day? And how efficiently are you using your space? So that was so brilliant because efficiency is not just the peak hour. It's that's right. The whole product, right? So if you think about how, you know, just over the course of the day, how much of your street is being used by the traffic man that you have. If you're only reaching your near capacity for a short period of time and the rest of the day is, is below capacity, that's inefficient. Right. Whereas if we can choose an intersection design that maybe doesn't quite do the job for the peak 15 minutes and you're going to have traffic during rush hour like we do anyway, and then over the rest of the day, it's more, you know, more evenly utilized, then that could be seen as a as a win for for an engineering community. And you're an engineer. We, there's yeah. performance measures are very important to the work we do. If we can embrace some of these performance measures that talk about street capacity in a different way, I think we can start to show success and, and you know victories with while achieving a lot of the other goals that we're talking about. Right, right. Yeah, that that's a that's a brilliant set of insights. One of your slides was just up Springfield State Street in Springfield. Yeah, and I don't know if you have a story on State Street. I obviously wrote a whole book about State Street in Springfield and my experiences there. You're in Boston. I don't, I'm, I'm assuming you've been to state street in Springfield. Yep. What, what, what is your, what's your take? What, what, so what's your. We last year uh, supported Springfield in doing a safe streets for all grant. So they, they ultimately won $16 million or something to invest in safety projects across the city. Yeah. But safe street is, you know, 
has always been and will continue to be a core challenge for that city. So it's a four lane street with a really, really traumatic crash history. Yeah. You know, due in, in a great part to the, the design of the street, we four lane street through a densely populated environment. We know that those are going to be high crash conditions and they have proven to be in, in Springfield, yeah. but there's a lot of traffic that uses that street. And so any analysis that looks at reducing the capacity of state, street from four lanes to say three lanes will show failure right failure during the peak hour yeah and so they've had a really hard time making any any serious changes there have been improvements to certain crossings and and tweaks along the way that i think are helpful but what's called for in an urban environment like that is safety for all users and a a change in that cross section along its length and you know you asked me what i think i think safety is more important than traffic capacity i would I would reduce the number of travel lanes. I would deal with the traffic consequences. And further, I would expect people to change behavior and the traffic wouldn't be as bad as the models show. Right. That's my sense too. I was there when a a little girl was killed right in front of the, the library. Such a tragedy. And it was made worse by the fact that it wasn't the first one and it certainly wasn't the last one in you know that same corridor and it, it was one of those things where I, I think the frustration was that people there felt the city wasn't listening to them because there was no action and i don't think that was an unreasonable response for residents at knowing the engineering profession and i think people having listened to you and i talk about this now can recognize that some of the paralysis we see from um, you know, transportation bureaucracies in the face of what to an outsider is like an obvious safety problem. A lot of it is the mathematical corner we backed ourselves into. And I do appreciate the framework that you put together because I, I think it reframes that mathematical problem in a way that gives us a lot more room to work. And, yeah. you know, for engineers, if a public official is telling you volume is not our top priority pedestrian crossing is you don't ignore that you lean into that and respond mm-hmm. to that in a good way i'm really sympathetic to the challenging position that traffic engineers and transportation decision making makers have been put in it's a story i like to tell uh, if you have a minute just yeah. here in, in my hometown i live in the city of medford massachusetts and we had a project recently proposing to remove some parking on the street and put in separated bike lanes. And it's a street that I bike with my kids to school every day. Mm-hmm. And so I was invested in it. And I showed up to the, you know, the virtual zoom meeting that the city held where they were going to decide whether or not to make this change. And, you know, you're in a meeting and one by one, my neighbors, my community members come off mute and say whether they're for the project because they want to ride to, they want to ride their bike with their family safely, or they're against the project because removing parking will make their life harder in specific ways. And, you know, it, it was easy to sympathize with every person, almost every person that got off mute and spoke. Sure. At the end, I just felt for the traffic commission who's, you know, I obviously had an opinion about which way it should go. And I, you can tell from this call where it would be that there's no way for them to decide what's more important, whether a separated bike lane is more important than a parking lane. Right. right. And so these individuals just had to go off their life experience and the how compelling they felt each story to be and make a determination. And I'm sorry to say that they decided to keep the parking and, and forego the safety of the separated bike lane. Right. And so my uh, my kids and I will continue to ride on the sidewalk for the time being. <laughs> Change is hard. And I feel like- And that's too. 
you've created a tool that, you know, at the very least is going to make change easier. I said earlier, I'm, I've kind of dedicated myself to going around the engineering profession mm -hmm. and in a sense, disempowering them. In lieu of that, I find your approach to be really credible and it expands the palette and it expands the conversation in a way that I feel like maybe is an even better approach. It's one that could get, get engineers on board. And I'm not going to say this has to be a generational thing, but I think people who aren't weighed down with decades of practice in a certain way are certainly going to be more open to a broader palette of discussion and decision-making. And that makes me kind of excited for people to, to get this in their hands and see it. How do people get in touch with you? How do people get a, their own kind of view of what you're working on? And how do people join this conversation that, that you're having? Yeah. So first off, the guide that we've been talking about, it's called NCHRP 1036 uh, Guidebook for Roadway Cross. Rolls off the tongue, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 1036. Google NCHRP 1036. It's the guidebook for roadway cross-section reallocation. We'll put a link to it in the show notes too for people. Appreciate so they can. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a free download. Right now, the pre-publication is online. Just this week, I saw the final draft of the fully typeset version. There'll be a printed book. I don't know how you'll be able to buy that off the web, but you don't have to. You can just download the free one, free PDF. Yeah, yeah. We're continuing to look for outlets to to talk about this. We're presenting at conferences. I presented at the at an Ashto conference last month, and continuing to look for ways to get the word out. My email address is published on the Kittleson website. I'm always interested in talking to folks, especially even if you want to challenge some of the concepts. I'm always like, we want to do our goal as a research team and as a as a firm are to produce products that are helpful. And so if there's something about this that's not working, we want to continue to tweak it and make it better and figure out a way to, as you say, work, we're, we're focused on working within the bounds of the profession for now and how we can equip people to make the choices that, you know, meet our goals. Connor, um, thanks for your time. I, I know we had set this up a few weeks back and it didn't work out my fault and, and you've been very patient. Thanks for taking the time. Say thank you to your kids for being so patient. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk again soon. Let's keep in touch. This is fantastic great. work you're doing. Thanks so much. Yep. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.